money on all three than entertainer Steve Martin would make in one show at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas 30 years later. Scary. Glenn Martin's mind still lingered on his recent performances with Raymond Massey for the USO in Europe, where he'd been working only weeks before. Acting was his passion and even though he had taken a position as resident actor and drama instructor at Baylor University, he knew he could do better for his family elsewhere. By 1954, his priorities and prayers were changing to succeeding in real estate. That's where there was money to be made. Soon, the Martins would move to the land of golden opportunity, Southern California, where real estate was going crazy, and Glenn Martin would make his money, and his mark on Orange County real estate history. Steve adored his father, but Glenn was too busy to spend much time with his son, and as the years rolled by, they became more and more distant. All Steve cared about during his early years was tumbling. He loved his tumbling classes. He enjoyed watching Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis movies and Milton Berle and Red Skelton on TV, He would imitate their routines for show-and-tell time in school. But before he knew it, he and his older sister, Melinda, were on their way to the land of promise. More promise than anyone could have possibly imagined. Steve called his father Glenn, not Dad or Pop, just Glenn. Mother was called neither Mom nor Mommy, but simply by her name, Mary Lee. There were few hugs in this family once they moved away from the warmth of Grandma Martin, who chose to remain behind in Waco. Sister Melinda was rarely conversational with Steve, and vice versa. Even as a child, Steve earned the money for what he wanted or needed. As the Martins didn't believe in doling out money to their kids, Steve started working at age seven. He was willing to work hard to ensure that he had cash on hand to buy the things he wanted. When fate placed Steve near the newest and greatest theme park in the history of the world, he wasted no time getting a job selling 25-cent guidebooks at Disneyland. It was the summer of 1956, and Steve was almost 11 years old. Disneyland had been open little more than a year. Although the Martins had been living in Inglewood, Glenn decided to buy a small tract home on Brookside Drive, only two miles from the Magic Kingdom. The Soviet Union was preparing to launch the first man-made satellite, Sputnik 1, into orbit, but the American public was, by nature, more entertainment-oriented, so Disneyland received far more attention than the forthcoming satellite. After all... What possible good could a satellite ever serve? Walt Disney himself was not impressed with Russian accomplishments or Russian dignitaries. In fact, he made headlines when he refused to let Premier Nikita Khrushchev visit his park. No one was more impressed with or more excited about Disney's boldest venture than the young Steve Martin. His summer was alive with action as he sold guidebooks at the main gate and became a fan and friend of Aldini, the man behind the tricks at the Magic Castle magic shop. Aldini also ran the Frontier magic shop and the Main Street magic shop. 
Before Steve knew it, the summer of 1956 had ended. It was September, time for school and higher education. As if anything could qualify as a higher education than watching Aldini or the surreal scenes that compose the little 17-acre park known as Disneyland. Aldini was an expert with sleight-of-hand magic tricks. He was also a mock con man, a slick talker, the kind of guy who would have been doing bean-under-the-shell tricks in the days of the frontier carpetbaggers. He was great in Steve's mind, and the feeling was mutual. Aldini would be remembered as Steve began formulating his character for the lead role in his 1991 movie Leap of Faith. Steve, in those early days, had more respect for magic than for organized religion, and more interest in collecting coins than going to church or a school. Steve knew what he liked. He liked D-Land, Red Skelton, Abbott and Costello, and being free to explore the world of magic and entertaining. Even as he gazed out the window of the stubby yellow school bus on his way to Palm Lane Elementary School for the first day of the sixth grade, Steve couldn't get his mind off Disneyland, magic tricks, and the evening fireworks display he viewed, courtesy of Disney, every night. He'd been able to stay at Disneyland, enjoying its wonders after his work, before hitchhiking home every night. He was so enamored by the world of Disney that he daydreamed about the place and only partially paid attention on the playground as the other kids screamed and hollered, renewing their friendships from the past year. It was Steve's first day at this new school, and all he could think about was Disneyland. A commotion nearby snapped Steve out of his daydream as a small crowd of children gathered around a boy with glasses standing near the tetherball game. I was also new at Palm Lane, and was faced with a crowd of strange kids who just could not believe that the bolo tie I was wearing had a real silver dollar as its centerpiece. I don't know why they doubted the authenticity of that bolo tie. After all, silver dollars were commonplace at that time especially in Las Vegas, where my father had purchased the tie. I liked being the center of attention, but I was outnumbered, outvoted, and losing the debate over the authenticity of the coin when another strange kid entered the group, holding his large hand slightly above his head in an attention-getting manner. He gently lifted my tie and scrutinized the coin. Hand still held high, he authoritatively announced to the group, I'm a numismatist, and this is definitely a real silver dollar. The bell rang, the crowd of kids dispersed quickly, and I looked at him with a curious expression and asked, What's a numismatist? A numismatist, he said politely, is a coin collector. He then smiled. I'm Morris, I said, offering my hand. Hi, I'm Steve. Steve Martin. We shook hands. His hand was large for a sixth-grade kid, and his grip was firm. We were instant friends. It was comedy at first sight. There was humor lurking behind every lesson, and an immediate chemistry between two boys that kept us together through thick and thin during those formative years.
My father was in the oil business and was away most of the time, primarily in Iraq then. Steve's father was there, but not really there. He was too busy with real estate. Until we graduated from high school, rarely a day passed that Steve and I were not together. We were closer than brothers, and rapid-fire creativity was a way of life for us. We could read each other's minds, and even as the years have flown by and Steve has grown to be a world-class entertainment superstar, things still happen between us that seem uncanny. Since my father worked in and around Baghdad for many years, and he would come home for a month only, once a year, he would fill our heads with exotic stories of Arabs in black veils and oil men who mocked their holy city of Mecca, and were then chased out of the country at Dagger Point. When the Gulf War broke out in 1991, Steve volunteered to travel to Asia and entertain the troops for the USO. He wrote me a letter telling me how strange it was to be where my dad had been, and what an eerie feeling he had, sitting there writing a letter to me about my father, from the same place my father had talked about so many times. My father had passed away by that time, but an eerie feeling also shot up my spine when I noticed that Steve's letter was written and dated on my dad's birthday. Glenn Martin was a tall, handsome man, always a gentleman, polite but aloof. What it boiled down to for Steve and me was that we were two rookie comedians with fathers who were not our role models or our pals. We loved them, but we never saw much of them. We were each other's role models. I was entertained by Steve, and Steve was entertained by me, and entertainment was our purpose.